welcome to another edition of LGBT in the Ring, your rainbow bastion for all things pro wrestling. I am your host, Brian Bell, here with you once again on the Outsports Podcast Network, and I am very excited to be back on this show. Last week, we uh, chatted all about New Japan Pro Wrestling's Wrestle Kingdom. Once again, thank you to Rachel Giuliani for coming on the show and uh, and chatting all about those uh, two or th- two to three nights um, <laughs> of wrestling. But um, we're taking things in a different direction for the rest of the month of January. Um, something I've really wanted to do with this show um, is not just uh, showcase... Um, people within pro wrestling um that belong to our community um whether it be wrestlers um managers uh producers creative types in the industry um i wanted to to cover a, a wide swath of that but um another aspect that really interests me and really uh deserves spotlight um, are the fellow LGBTQ pro wrestling uh, journalists and columnists and writers that um, are exist in wrestling media. So for the rest of the month of January, we are doing a, uh, a theme month. Uh, journalist January. I'm bad at coming up with names. <laughs> but no, so for the rest of the month, we're going to be um, featuring conversations with uh, pro wrestling journalists, columnists, writers, editors, like um, the the swath of wrestling media um, members who identify as LGBTQ. And we're kicking that off this week with a conversation with uh, past guests on the show uh, and a uh, contributor to Daily DDT, Patches Chance. Of course, Patches has been on the show previously, to where we had him on last year uh, to chat about um, the whole situation around the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, the situation in Tampa and WWE's relations with the city of Tampa around WrestleMania. Um, and then he's been back on uh, uh, here and there to, to chat about some pay-per-views and stuff. But we really get a chance to sit down and kind of dig into Patch's journey um, to the position that he's in now covering the industry uh, with some really, really awesome pieces over at Daily DDT that um, everyone should check out. So um, I was super excited to sit down with him and learn more about him, and I hope that you are as well. We also do get into some discussion about wrestling media as a whole, um, some of the the positives, some of the negatives um, in terms of um, aspects of the industry that – that we've seen and that we uh, are very uh, apt to discuss. Um, and so it's it gets a little inside baseball, but that's always fun uh, for me, or, or interesting rather. I need to say, fun is not everything. <laughs> but um, either way, I truly enjoyed having the chance to sit down with Patches, and I hope that you all enjoy our conversation um, right here on the other side of the break on LGBT in the Ring. What's up, guys, gals, and non-binary pals? Welcome back to LGBT in the Ring. And we are kicking off our little month-long series here, Journalist January, um, by bringing back someone who's been on the show a couple of times at this point, um, talking a little bit about WWE. But uh, what 
he covers around pro wrestling and his uh, span of coverage, I would say, goes far beyond that. Um, Patches Chance, welcome back to LGBT in the Ring. Thank you for having me. No, it's, it's a blast. Like I, I've been like I was talking to you a little bit before we um, started recording. Like I've been super excited to kind of invite back people that have been on the show previously, to not just talk about news of the day, but also just talk about themselves and their own experiences in this um, very nebulous and weird world of wrestling journalism. Which has yeah, it's to- uh, yeah, it's an interesting place. It definitely is, and it seems to find itself in brand new discourse like almost every day. I don't know why, <laughs> but <sighs> yeah, it's just something that it seems like it's just something that happens now. It's just it's part of the game. It definitely is. It definitely is. And um, well, we're gonna put that to the side at least for a little bit here because the main reason why I brought you on the show as well as all the other guests that we have lined up for the rest of January here is to get to know to know you a little bit more and understand why you chose to enter this field and, and what you um, your experiences in it and, and a lot of what you see and, and, and experience like when, in terms of working around it and, and what you see on the horizon for it as well. Um, but all of that starts at the very beginning and the very beginning for us always is where did you patches um, start to recognize pro wrestling is something that you were interested in? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's always where it begins is how did, you know, how did everyone start watching wrestling? Um, for me, my older siblings, um, I'm the youngest of three and they're seven and 11 years older than me. Uh, they were both wrestling fans in the 90s, and for a good period of time, I didn't show an interest. I kind of pushed back against it and just didn't care to pay attention to it with them and just kind of ignored it. And then sometime around um, 99, 2000 uh, was when I really started to catch a couple episodes here and there and caught uh, one of the first pay-per-views I have a memory of watching was Survivor Series 2000 and then Royal Rumble 2001, and right into WrestleMania 17, which I didn't get to be at, but I saw, and it was in, you know, right near my hometown in Houston, and uh, just, it, it kind of just went from there. It, uh, it grew from there as I continued to watch over the years, and then in the, the uh, mid-2000s to late-2000s, um, up till about 2009, 2010, I actually got heavily involved in e-fetting. Uh, uh, was involved in writing for wrestling role-playing feds and even ran one for a good period of time. And that was kind of, in an interesting way, a time where I discovered my love of writing while I was in junior high and high school, when I was kind of diving into that. And you know, exploring creativity through that outlet, but also realizing, you know, that writing was something I could do on a larger scale, even though that was kind of a far cry from what I eventually ended up doing. Hmm. It's really interesting that, that you, that you uh, kind of found that, that love through, originally through uh, working with EFEDS. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a very 
interesting ecosystem to me, one that I, I dabbled in a little bit as well, but ended up necessarily um, going as deep into as, as other people that I've spoken with. I, I do want to talk to you a little bit more about that, but I'm curious back when you're talking about um, your siblings being more into it and you just kind of, um, I guess for lack of a better word, it's like ignoring wrestling at this point before you did find something to latch onto. What, what was the, the motivation behind that for you um, when it came to like looking at what your siblings liked and you just kind of like, eh, not really my thing? It, it's hard thinking back. There isn't really like a very clear memory of me of what exactly was the catalyst for the shift. Um, I just know, especially from talking to them, that there was a period where they kept trying to get me to watch. And I, I think maybe it was just one of those things that, I mean, I was in, you know, I was eight, nine years old at the time. And so I wasn't, maybe I was just pushing back in some way for no reason, really. Um, and then eventually, as I started to watch a couple shows with them and catch a couple pay-per-views, which uh, usually our neighbor would order, and we would all go over there and watch together, and watching Survivor Series and then Royal Rumble, I really remember Royal Rumble watching and just kind of getting wrapped up in the excitement, like even not knowing really who everybody was. Like, I legitimately thought Bubba Ray Dudley was going to win the Royal Rumble because he wore camo and he looked interesting and I was, you know, 10. So that, that's just all I saw. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, you know, it, it was little things people would catch my attention. And the, uh, the big ones that I really latched onto in an early point were Edge and Christian and Rhino. And those were some of my faves and over the years that grew and you know different people kind of caught my attention over the years but it all kind of spiraled from there um as i started to watch more frequently and started to really get a better grip on what was going on and getting a grip on wrestling history and everything that went into it and kind of everything that makes up this weird art form no i mean you're not wrong and that i i i I'm with you in a way like I kind of missed the days where I did watch and thought that Bubba Ray Dudley or someone of the caliber or uh, someone of the booking of Bubba Ray Dudley right, would be someone that could win. Yeah, exactly. That could win the rumble. Like those days are long gone in, in my brain, but at the same time, like I miss them. I'm nostalgic for that in a way, because it's, it's just a different way of experiencing uh, the, yeah. the industry. Oh, and, and I'm really asking about that in relationship with your siblings there, because like whenever I first got into pro wrestling back when I was around like nine or 10, like my younger brother, like was a little bit resistant at first as well. So there's always like these mm -hmm. weird, like they're not necessarily weird, but they're interesting, um, like dichotomies in the relationships between siblings in that way, especially when it comes to like what one likes and, and how the other one responds to it. So it, it, it was just really interesting to hear. Um, that that sort of like a little yeah. bit of the same experience was there. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of an ironic thing looking back now, because um, as the years have passed, uh, you know, my oldest sibling, he is, uh, you know, he still kind of pays attention. He catches big moments now and then, and kind of pays attention to Royal Rumble WrestleMania season, but that's really about it. And then my other sibling, they, 
really focused more on like New Japan and stardom now mm. and still catch WWE big stuff like big events and stuff like that and catch recaps and clips but don't follow WWE nearly as closely as they used to and me being the youngest and kind of the last one to get involved I was the one who ended up getting deep into e-fetting and then eventually you know many years later finding my way into now being in wrestling journalism which is something I never could have imagined at the time no, I mean, I, I, I can totally understand that feeling <laughs> in many ways. Um, uh, real quick, I do, I do want to get to the, to the some of the EFED talk here, but, but real quick, what do you, how do your siblings, um, react now knowing that you know, your one of your jobs is covering the industry? Um, I think they both think it's very interesting. Uh, yeah. I talk uh, less to my oldest brother, and he. Uh, I think he just thinks it's interesting and, you know, catches bits and pieces of what I'm doing. Um, my other older sibling, they, uh, I keep in contact with them very frequently, almost daily, really. We text really frequently. And so they're always kind of paying attention to what I'm doing and can also be kind of a, a sounding board for me, even though they're not plugged in in exactly the same way. They've watched, you know, even longer than I have. And we've kind of shared this bond over wrestling for pretty much my whole life since I started watching. And so they kind of, you know, speaking to them can provide an interesting perspective from what they've seen over the years. And it kind of a perspective I can always trust if I'm curious about something or just trying to bounce ideas. Hmm. It sounds invaluable. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I do want to talk to you about eFedding as well. Um, for, for people that are listening that may not know what, what eFed actually is, do you mind giving like a, like a little explainer um, about eFedding and then maybe a little bit about um, how you got into that? Yeah, so um, eFedding is kind of an umbrella term uh, that covers, it, generally it's people who set up usually through a forum or a website of some kind uh, especially during the time I was doing it, usually we used forums, usually pro boards for us. Um, what is basically a fictional wrestling federation. And some of them will use real life characters built in. So people will actually be representing, you know, Kurt Angle or The Rock or Stone Cold or Rhino or Edge or someone like that. Others will do completely custom characters where you will come up with a completely new idea. You will pick a name, you will pick a backstory, you will craft everything from scratch. And sometimes you might pick a real life wrestler to represent just the image of the character, basically just kind of as a reference point being like, my character looks like Rhino, but their name is this, and this is their details. And then you kind of extrapolate from there. And in the ones I was in, especially, it was almost like a writing competition framed around wrestling it was so much fun because basically you would set up a card you know you would go into we sometimes would have weekly or bi-weekly shows leading into pay-per-views kind of following the same format as wrestling and you would set up a card and say you know one person would be facing one person and going into that show each of them would write a story based on their character based on the match they were having with those things in mind and it could be, you know, something 
straightforward as like a first person interview where just be like them cutting a promo or you could kind of do a more elaborate story about the character's background and maybe things they're doing to train or really the options were kind of completely open and the people who run the fed when you know the deadline hits and it's time for the show they look at the stories or the role plays is what they were called that each person wrote and go this one was the best one and that person's going to win the match and that's how decisions were made and so i got challenged this way that i came in even in just kind of learning this that and expanding my creative writing i came up with a character that continued to evolve over a couple of years that i was involved and continued to push myself and every week it was I got to really write something interesting because I want to win. And that was the way it worked. Hmm. That sounds like so much. Well, I mean, there's always, there's, there's always some level of, of politicking and anything like this, but like, it of sounds, it, it sounds so much more benign than my experience in EFAT. <laughs> I don't it's, know. There, I, there's, sorry. there's politicking and there's, there's a weird level of politics and drama to efeds like i mean the wrestling community already has a level of drama that's kind of hard to encapsulate for someone who's not a part of it efedding is kind of a sub layer of that that almost gets more ridiculous and you know as much as i look back with fond memories on my history in efedding there was a lot of unnecessary drama and a lot of unnecessary just back and forth and you know if someone writes something it, everything's subjective and so people get upset about who won and people get upset about the way things are done and it, it just happens. But yeah. the, the positives that I pulled out of that and my time, you know, writing basically as an EFED competitor and even for a period running an EFED, which was kind of, kind of fell into my lap. Um, the person who was running the one that I was primarily involved in wasn't able to continue running it. I ended up taking on that position and it just kind of went from there and so all those experiences you know even for the drama and this frustration that came with them the thing that stood out the most and that kind of has impacted me over the years is the way that it really helped kind of ignite my love of creative writing and my love of writing about things in a wrestling spectrum mm. so would you say that 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 um, passion for creative writing that, that you pulled from your EFED experience kind of fed into um, your desire to become more involved in pro wrestling as a whole beyond that going forward? I think it eventually did. I don't think it did in the immediate. Hmm. Um, it, it's interesting. The uh, it, It's interesting looking back because I can see a lot of things like EFEDing and other things that kind of played into the eventual story of how I ended up in wrestling journalism. But in the same way, I can also look back and it's almost just kind of like a happenstance of events. Um, I was for a period of time um, for about five years, I was a police dispatcher. And when I first started that job, I was living in college station, uh, which is where Texas A&M university is located. And while I was living there, I was a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan. And I listened to a podcast about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers called What the Buck. 
when I was listening to that podcast, I heard them say they were looking for writers for their website. And I thought, I can write. Why don't I apply? So I wrote up, I, I sent them an email and they asked me to write up a sample piece. Since I was living in College Station and I was kind of, even though I wasn't going to AM, I was immersed in Texas AM culture because that's pretty much all College Station is. Yeah. I was abundantly aware of Johnny Manziel, who's turned into a whole other thing, but at the time was the Texas AM quarterback. And so I wrote up a quick sample piece basically to see if I knew what I was doing, saying, the Buccaneers should draft Johnny Manziel. I didn't think they should, but it was an easy piece to write because I already knew about Manziel's college football career. And I had, you know, most of the references and I put it together and I sent it along to them. And I thought, cool, this is an interesting thing. Maybe they'll decide they like it and then we'll see what will go from there. And I got an email back a few days later and they said, you know, basically loved your piece. It goes live on Friday. Oh, wow. And I was like, it does what now? <laughs> you mean you mean that sample I wrote that I don't believe anything in it? Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean it was well thought out, but I don't think they should draft Johnny Mansell. <laughs> My God. And it just happened. It just started rolling. And then I, you know, I, I still I was still happy with the piece, even though I disagreed with the overall premise. And it went up. It was a start. And I started, you know, covering Bucks in the off season, and then for about two years, it just kind of got rolling, and I was just covering the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for this website. And through that, I met someone named Gore Samuel, who was based in the UK, ironically enough, and was a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan as well. And in about 2016, uh, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, it was in 2016, he had a website called Real Sport. And they were looking for writers and I got in touch with them and I was like, Hey, I saw that y'all looking for football writers, but I also saw that y'all looking for wrestling writers. And I know a lot more about wrestling than I do about football. And I enjoyed football at the time, but I had not been a football fan for, but maybe two or three years. Mm. I'd been a wrestling fan for 16. So even though I hadn't written about wrestling, I had all this background built up going in and so i got on there started kind of covering things here and there and before i knew it i was the editor for real sport handling the wrestling content section wow i was organizing the entire section um i really enjoyed that it was that was really where everything got rolling for me and i covered wrestling you know more and more and continued to improve my writing as time went on that was also where i first got the opportunity to do interviews um, I got to interview several people through Impact Wrestling. Impact Wrestling had a uh, contact that we were in touch with, largely because, uh, especially around then, they were working on better TV deals in the UK. So they were interested in getting stuff in UK media. And so I got the opportunity to interview Josh Matthews, Al Snow, Bobby Lashley, um, Eddie Edwards, and a handful of others, all while, while working with Real Sport. And that went on for about two years. And it was going really well until Real Sport got acquired by a different company that kind of didn't support the wrestling section for about four or five months. Mm. 
and then out of nowhere went, we're removing all real sports coverage and we're becoming an esports only website. Oh, wow. That's a drastic swing. Yeah, which still cracks me up because they're still branded as Real Sport 101, but they don't cover any real sports. <laughs> I will say this as, as an esports coverage person, I, I, I fly in the face of, the, of, of that comment. I, but I, I understand I mean, what you I, mean. I, I, get, I, I understand what you mean. I, I love and respect and appreciate esports, but it's, it's really some irony to have that branding and only cover esports. I will I I will I will stand beside you on that. That is definitely a very odd branding for an esports website. Yeah, and so that happened and kind of out of nowhere I had nowhere. And so I kind of was looking around for somewhere to go and I ended up finding my way within a couple months to Daily DDT. Uh, I started as a contributor for a brief period of time and then an opening came up for a co-expert, which is basically a co-editor, and got into that position as well and did that for about the better part of 2019. Um, and it was a lot of fun. It was a new kind of challenge and it was a new opportunity to kind of, you know, be a part of wrestling media and try and, you know, affect positive change in wrestling media and be a good positive outlet that was covering things that were important but also not being negative just for the sake of being negative mm -hmm. what what were the the challenge the different challenges that you speak of like in terms of like an editorial position at uh daily ddt versus real sports um the primary difference was the uh overall amount of content that they were expecting us to put out mm -hmm. um which has kind of varied since then but at the time they were expecting, you know, practically a piece a day um, on a monthly basis. So 20 to 30 articles a month. Mm. And the uh, biggest struggle that I ran into at the time, uh, it was, I was really enjoying what I was doing, but I was also kind of in a really turbulent period in my personal life. I had left police dispatch entirely because I kind of got disgusted with law enforcement culture and I was initially staying with family in Louisiana and then moved and was kind of out of nowhere living in New York City, staying with a friend um, and trying to find a full-time job as a day job while I was there. There was a lot going on. And then one of the things that I kind of discovered as I was with Daily DDT was I was really enjoying doing independent interviews with independent wrestlers that people hadn't heard as much of. I, I enjoyed impact stuff because I, that was kind of really where I got started is doing ones with, you know, bigger names like Bobby Lashley or Eddie Edwards. But there was something that was a lot more interesting and personal to me about talking to someone that was still kind of trying to launch themselves into some sort of notoriety and getting to tell their story and put a spotlight on them that they couldn't necessarily get elsewhere. And it, as I was also dealing with a lot of other stuff, the balance kind of got off and it was difficult to balance all the stuff I had going on in my personal life along with trying to focus on these independent interviews on top of focusing on editorial duties, editing other people's pieces and kind of the, you know, just pumping out 20 to 30 articles a month that the website was expecting 
regardless of whether they were as, you know, maybe impactful or as important as spotlights like that, or if they were just, you know, look what Sasha said on Twitter. And I appreciate stuff like that because, you know, fans still enjoy it and there's nothing wrong with that. And it does play a role in driving traffic to websites. And I understand the importance of that, but there has to be a balance where you also are covering stuff that's important and not just kind of cookie cutter. No, I completely on board with you. Like I've been in situations like that where, you know, places are expecting like an art, like an article a day. Um, and yeah. that, that leaves you very little space to really explore what, you know, something maybe off the beaten path or something like you're talking about, we're focusing more on these, um, more like down to earth stories of, of people that are still on the rise that mm -hmm. need that sort of coverage. Um, and it can, it can be very hampering um, to have those kind of expectations on, on, on you and, and trying to craft out this different voice um, and these different styles of articles. Like I I'm on record as being like, not a huge fan of like doing listicles and stuff like that. I, mm -hmm. I don't think that I, I hardly speaking to, I've spoken, spoken to in a number of writers that they're like, yeah, it's not the most like stimulating thing in the world, but um, I understand, like you said, I understand the role and stuff like that um, or more like social, social media forward um, articles that are, you know, yeah. very much uh, can drive traffic, but you have to leave yourself that space to explore the medium that you're in um, or else like burnout can build up very, very, very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And especially when, you know, and that was kind of something I was facing was it was, there just wasn't a balance. And I felt like I almost felt guilty working on the things that I was most passionate about because I felt like, I should be spending more time pumping out content that meant less mm. and kind of when the balance was off, plus everything else I had going on, that was why I chose to step down at the time. That's a position I'd still reconsider going back into in the future. But in the meantime, I've really appreciated being able to spend the last year diving into some really, you know, what I felt were powerful and, and important topics that I just wouldn't have had the time to, deliver in that way with all those extra responsibilities yeah and it's a very valuable uh thing to have to have the time to do to build out those pieces and to focus on you know a, a lot of the work that i've liked from from you has been stuff that's very intersectional with with a lot mm -hmm. of other um cultural topics i really enjoyed the, the interview you did with mv young last year uh, after he had been so vocal and present during a lot of the George Floyd protests in New York. Yeah. Um, that, and, and honestly, like that is a, that is an experience that needs to be shared to the larger wrestling audience, to the larger audience as a whole, honestly, to continue to kind of put these, these social change messages and movements forward. Um, wrestling yeah, is an that, example from telling those stories. Yeah. That was a piece I was, uh, very happy with the way it ultimately came out it was something that you know that was not what i anticipated going into that piece by any means because the first time i'd spoken to mv young was in may before any of that happened and you know we had spoken about you know his positivity on social media and body positivity and mental health and 
I distinctly remember one of kind of the last things we talked about, you know, and it's stuff about his career as well. And one of the last things we talked about was, what do you think Pride Month is going to look like? Because of the way coronavirus was affecting the wrestling industry and the way things were, you know, going differently in 2020. And the, you know, the process of actually working on it kind of got pushed back a little bit. And then before anyone knew it, it was June and June didn't look like anything what anyone thought June was going to look like, including, you know, not just coronavirus, you know, we didn't have the smattering of Pride Month shows that has become a staple of wrestling for good or ill. Um, Good, but also, unfortunately, that's a lot of companies only time they talk about queer talent. Yeah. Uh, But it also, you know, the month became very important for protests and it became important to talk about the history of pride and the history that pride played as a role in protests and pushing forward these important conversations on social topics. You know, the image that I ended up choosing for it was when I found it was a sign in front of the, uh, the Stonewall in New York that said, the first, I believe it said the first pride was a riot. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, a lot of people in, not everybody by any means, but a lot of people in, you know, 2019 and probably into 2020 before June 2020 turned into what it was, like to think of pride as just kind of happy parades and all this, you know, positivity and not think about the, very gritty reality of what those people were fighting for when pride first became a thing that what the stonewall riots meant for queer history and for the way that things have advanced over the years and when he was you know when mv young was you know in new york during the protests and everything in june and heavily involved in passing out Gatorade and water to people and collecting donations to keep people hydrated at the protests and, you know, being there to use his own presence as well. It became clear to me I needed to talk to him about that. There was no way I could do this piece without including that. And so fortunately, after he had kind of gotten, we kept kind of missing each other. And then he was understandably exhausted after several days of constant protests um i finally got a chance to talk to him and it was it just felt like a very important conversation talking about things that you know the average interview is going to be you know what's about your career and what's your favorite match and i think those are fun things but talking about what are you doing at these protests and where does pride month and queer history intersect with that i think is so much more valuable no, I completely agree, um, and and I think that's what made that that piece as valuable as as it is, um, to show the these intersections and to show how everything happening in the world um, interacts with the industry that we cover, but also in how mm-hmm. it interacts with the other cultural touchstones that have you know been have more of a voice now, you know, like yeah. I, I think the last five years has probably been the the, the best time in the history of the industry, obviously for queer talent, um, female talent, talent of color, 
um any uh, yeah. basically any marginalized group they've had like we've seen an uptick in profile things things are like undeniably improving but yes. i think it's also you know these are important conversations to have about the way things have improved which need to be recognized and appreciated but also look at the way things still need to keep going because we've got a lot of work to do as well no exactly and and the fact that what comes with that rise in profile is more of a chance to have their voices heard and yeah. that's one thing that i think you know uh, not every place in wrestling media obviously because and, and we could talk about that a little bit but um a lot of places in wrestling media have you know taken that to heart in in a ways you mm -hmm. know through work, your work i know phil Lindsay, a lot of his work has been doing focusing a lot of that we've seen a bunch of places pop up here and there that um have writers that are that are looking at a lot of the stuff colette aaron and, and a lot of the people mm -hmm. in fanbite have done a lot of that stuff as well so like there are places in the ecosystem that are starting to really embrace that approach um and i'm curious does that approach um whenever you were speaking earlier about you know coming into daily dvd in an editorial position um and using that to kind of affect uh, change in a more positive form of coverage um, of, of the wrestling scene as compared to the rest of a number of other places in wrestling media. Does focusing on like empowering marginalized voices and, and telling these um, these stories of the intersectionality of pro wrestling and, and cultural um, issues, does that feed into that uh, purpose of making a more positive, um, a more positive vertical? Yeah, I absolutely think it does. And it, it kind of becomes, it, it's something that has to be thought of, you know, intentionally, and very kind of understand what you're doing and what you can do better. But I think it also um, can be if, if it becomes baked into the approach in a way, then it kind of starts to work on itself. That if you, you know, you build a team with the right people, and you build a team with the right voices, and enough of those voices talk to each other about important things, then it kind of starts to feed upon itself and produce the kind of discourse that we need. And some of that, you know, is just positivity. And some of that is talking about tough subjects and covering tough topics that need to be discussed. And that's something that uh, in my time when I got started and, you know, in the time when I was there as an editor and later, that has been one of my favorite things about daily DDT has not just been what I've been able to do, but has been the whole atmosphere um, of, you know, a diverse team and being able to talk about anything in our group chat. The, the daily DDT group chat is something I still, you know, we're all in, a lot of us are in practically on the daily. And when, you know, important things are happening in wrestling, it pops in because we all care about it and we're all able to stay up to date on things that are happening, whether it's about queer intersectionality or whether it's about, you know, talent of color that are getting the spotlight they deserve, or whether it's about tough topics like speaking out or topics like talent of color, not getting the opportunities they deserve and being held down or ignored in ways that they shouldn't be. These are all things that, you know, it's really valuable that those are things that we can all discuss. And I think that has a kind of an overall positive effect on 
our coverage and the way that, you know, not just independent pieces, but the way that that all colors all of our coverage, even if it's, you know, say mundane coverage or seemingly mundane coverage like recaps or listicles, that's all part of the conversation already. And so that starts to affect decisions, even when it's like, you know, what were the best matches this year and who are people we need to watch out for? Things like that. Yeah, no, totally. And, and, and you want to start having these, these influences run through pretty much every facet of, of the coverage there to continue putting these viewpoints forward and to continue to have that, that sort of, um, uh, I guess, operating uh, objective in a way. I'm yeah. not very good at words today. I apologize. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Right. No. Kind of getting back a little bit on the same topic, but a different feel to it. You as being an, an out bisexual uh, man, um, obviously you belong to one of these marginalized communities that you've, mm-hmm. you and other places have offered um, more, more spotlight to in recent years and, and have been continually working to put forward through wrestling media. Did that, did your identity kind of inform your desire, your decision or your want to focus on um, these communities in your coverage? Um, it definitely did. And uh, that's something that, I feel like I'm a lot better informed now than I was a few years ago. And part of the reason for that is that I've only kind of arrived at my identity in the last few years. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, growing up in Southeast Texas and going to, you know, Southern Baptist church in my late teens, early twenties, everything that you think goes along with that goes along with that. Um, if that makes sense. And uh, I I went to Southern Baptist church too. I totally get it. (laughs) Yeah. And there, even the the churches that I attended were, you know, more modernized and more, it it seemed a little more progressive, but really weren't as much as they like to appear to be. And over a period of time, for a long time, I kind of, um, I've recognized that in hindsight, that it was very much internalized by phobia that there was like there was like a gap somewhere in my brain that never allowed me to process the possibility of being bisexual because being you know growing up in the area I was growing up and being involved in the church heavily in my late teens early 20s it there there was the layer of the fact that the church was always you know even though it was a little more little less offensive about it it was never fully accepting of homosexuality or a queer identity in any way um the church i was at even though it would kind of seem more positive about things one of their core like six tenets was biblical gender roles lovely with yeah which they like to like fluff up really well and make it seem like it's not misogynistic or problematic and it is. It, it, it really is. Um, and that was something that I was kind of entrenched in. And so it took time and eventually distance to really process and perceive. But at the time, I kind of was, there was always this gap in my brain that was like, well, I'm still attracted to women, so I can't possibly be gay. Huh, guess I'm straight. 
And, and that's all it was in my brain for such a long period of time until eventually it just clicked. I went, oh, I've been by this whole time. <laughs> what, what made it click for you? Was there a specific experience um, or? It, there wasn't some like, there wasn't a very clear catalyst looking back. Um, I think it was just kind of a period of transition in life. And then kind of eventually it kind of dawned on me for whatever reason at the time. Um, it was after I had left uh, police dispatch, which law enforcement culture, incredibly inherently homophobic um, in so many ways. Uh, and getting you know out of that environment and away from that, even though I was um, very progressive when I was there, like I was very not a fan of Donald Trump and very you know progressive and Democrat which was not the norm. I was the only one. Um, I distinctly remember and one officer that I eventually convinced to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, he like waited until nobody else was there and then like approached me in dispatch and was like, hey, don't, don't tell anyone, but I voted for Hillary. <laughs> wow. That was on election day in 2016. And so that was kind of the environment that I was in and, you know, eventually getting out of that and getting some distance from that. That was around the same time I was staying in family with, um, staying with family in Louisiana and had just gotten away from my very racist and homophobic dad who I had been staying with for a period of time immediately after leaving dispatch and um, getting to kind of, you know, get at the time, getting started with daily DDT and getting involved as an expert and uh, speaking to somebody else who was involved in wrestling media, who was a bisexual male. And maybe that had an influence on it, but there was never a very clear click. It's just at some point the switch flipped when I wasn't paying attention and then everything else was different and made a lot more sense. Mm. And once it did, it really shifted the way I was looking at things. And, you know, quickly I started to shift and realize eh, the value I could try and provide in telling queer stories and talking to people in the community and in the wrestling industry who weren't getting the spotlight that they needed. And, you know, I had over these years developed some sort of platform and some sort of voice and I felt like it was only right for me to use that. No, I mean, that's really one of the, the true powers that comes with like, you know, belonging to these communities and being in the, having the opportunities that, that we have in, in the media to be able to tell these stories and to elevate the voices that we can. Um, and yeah, I, it, that's, I don't know. That's just very, it's a very touching a very touching uh, approach, I would say. One that I would hope that, you know, can be applied in in multiple ways for journalists in this industry of, um, you know, all identities to really approach yeah. how they cover this industry. Because um, um, obviously, right now there's been a, there's a lot of tumult in the wrestling media landscape just you know recently we're not gonna i don't want to get necessarily into you know all the bruce mitchell stuff but right but the, you know but, it's it's always a, it's always an industry in flux in a lot of ways 
Yeah, and you know, it's an industry that I think has really grown a lot in the last several years and is really continuing to grow. Um, but you know, the the fact is, for a long time, and this is not exclusive to wrestling media, and this is not exclusive even to media or journalism, but for a long time, wrestling media has been dominated by a straight white male perspective. Mm-hmm. And even for me, I always and try to step back and recognize that even as a bisexual male, I'm still a cisgendered white male. And I carry a lot of privilege with that. And I try to check that as much as I can and understand the perspective with which I'm approaching things so that I can help, you know, keep that avenue and keep that privilege at bay and give things the spotlight that they deserve and not let that color things too much. Yeah, I mean, it's an important thing to to have that self-recognition and to have that ability to recognize your own privilege, even within an, an underprivileged community. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think I'm right there with you in terms of like, you know, using what, uh, doing what I, what I can with my platform to elevate voices that wouldn't necessarily have that platform. So, yeah, yeah. I, it's an approach that honestly, I really hope we will see more of going forward. And there's been, like you said, there's been a lot of growth. But there's it's also an industry that's still dominated by a lot of content farming and a lot of mm-hmm. um, focus on negativity in in the industry and some very crass way approaches to coverage as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's on a precipice in some ways. I think it's especially when it comes to like being taken seriously as a journalistic endeavor. Yeah, and I think, you know, it, while things are definitely improving, the, you know, as we've talked about, there's still more work to be done. But the good news is that it really feels like things are on the right path. That even if they're not moving maybe as quickly or as effectively as I would like it sometimes, they are heading in the right direction. Yeah, and that, that's all we can hope for and just keep pushing it, doing our, doing what we can to push it in that direction. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I'm curious, like knowing like your approach to to your coverage and everything, what have been some of your personal favorite pieces that that you've worked on and put out there? Um, So it is kind of hard to narrow down because there's been some that, you know, uh, almost all of the interview pieces I've done have been kind of special to me in their own unique ways. Um, The one that I did uh, before I get to some of the ones that have more queer intersectionality, there was one that I did earlier this year that is, or not earlier this year, early 2020, because good Lord, what a couple years it's been. God, Uh, um, In early 2020, that is still one of my favorite pieces because it was a story that I didn't really, I I just stumbled upon. Um, So I was working on a piece uh, heading into WrestleMania season about Texas Forever, which was the Texas show for GCW's The Collective, five Texas promotions coming together to spotlight Texas independent wrestling talent. And so I coordinated, I had spoken to a lot of people in Texas wrestling. I had um, interviewed the promoters of a couple of Texas uh, promotions already. And so I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to all five promoters and bring together one big piece spotlighting Texas forever. And in the process of doing that, one of the people I spoke to was Rogelio Martinez, and he's the promoter and uh, I believe owner or founder 
of Lucha Brutal. Lucha Brutal is a Texas wrestling promotion that's only been around for a few years. And in speaking to him, I, we kind of had a long conversation and I figured I'd do a spotlight on kind of how did Lucha Brutal get started because it was relatively new and do that separate of the Texas Forever piece. Now the Texas Forever piece eventually came together. I was still very happy with it. But the story that I found in speaking to Rogelio was the story of his sister, Maggie Martinez. Um, and Maggie was a NICU nurse and a, you know, his, it was Rogelio's sister and they, he kind of found his love for independent wrestling and kind of found his way back to the wrestling industry by attending shows with her. And there were lots of poignant stories about them going to, um, I believe the WrestleCon show in Dallas and all these different things. But the kind of devastating story about it is that uh, Maggie actually died very suddenly in, I believe, 2017. I, I'm not certain on dates, but it's all in the piece if anybody wants to check it out, mm. um, which is on my website, uh, patcheschance.com. Um, but it, she basically, they were driving to a show and she, I believe, had a brain aneurysm and oh, just wow. completely sudden. I think she was in her early 40s, late 30s and just out of nowhere. And there was this outpouring from the wrestling community. Um, Thunder Rosa was a big one. Thunder Rosa traveled to the hospital to see her while she was in a coma for a few days before she passed. Um, and these weren't like their best friends. These are people they had seen at a handful of wrestling shows. You know, at the time, Rogelio was not a promoter. Rogelio did not have a promotion. He was just a fan that had gone to these shows with his sister and him and his sister had made such a profound impact on people that when that happened to her, you know, this chunk of the Texas independent wrestling community kind of immediately poured down upon them to try and help him and, you know, appreciate the role that she had played and, you know, how much, how kind she was to people in her time as a fan and went through, Rogelio eventually ended up being able to work with um, a different promotion in Dallas and then eventually Lucha Brutal and in the process came up with the Maggie Martinez Memorial Intergender Tag Team Titles and did a tournament to crown the champions. And so her memory gets to live on in the industry now. These are titles that exist that, you know, were initially with a different promotion, but are now part of Lucha Brutal. They're titles that are still carried by the people who won them in sometimes other promotions in the country. They have a cage match listing. Like, this is someone who is a fan who made such a profound impact on people just as a kind person and a part of this community. And now her memory lives on as a part of this industry forever. And that was such a powerful story that I still feel really blessed to have gotten the chance to communicate and cover and, you know, do justice to her memory through that. No, I mean, that, that is a, that is a very, very powerful story. And it speaks a lot to the, the this communal element that pro wrestling presents that other um, forms of entertainment and other sports really don't. 
you know, like, like what you were talking about, like writing about football earlier, like you don't have like football players visiting, like, you know, like fans like that, like in this similar circumstance like this, like in, in the hospital, you don't have this, this, it, this it, level. Especially of not at that scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's just, it, it's hard to encapsulate. It's just different. Um, but yeah, that's, that's still something that I feel you know, really more than anything going into it, it was kind of coming out of it. I was like, I don't care if anybody reads it, but as long as Rahelio and, you know, Maggie's family is happy with it and feels like this was a good justice to her memory, nothing else matters. Yeah. And they, you know, they were happy with it and that's, that's all I really cared about. And so that, you know, still is going to stand out, I think, for a long time as one of my favorites. Um, as 2020 kind of progressed... Um, I got the chance to talk to MV Young, which we talked about earlier. That was, you know, again, was one that kind of the story found me as I was working on it and got to become something powerful. Um, I got to speak to uh, Darnell and Lynn Fraley for Uncanny Attractions and MV again and do a spotlight on Uncanny Attractions and talk to all three of them and let them all kind of be a part of the conversation for that. And that was really special. Um, I got to speak to Fred Rosser uh, last year, and that was one that I it, it kind of popped together out of nowhere and was really surreal because, I mean, I remember watching Fred Rosser as Darren Young when I was in my late teens, you know, watching the initial Nexus run and watching the original NXT before it was anything like it is today. Mm-hmm. And all those years later, you know, now getting to speak to him about um, the progress that the industry has made and the progress that the industry needs to continue to make um, for, you know, LGBTQ talent and for the community um, was just very special. And then kind of the capper on 2020 and what will also remain as one of my favorite pieces for a long time was Paris's bumping. Um, yes. Getting to speak to so many people uh, it for Paris's bumping from, you know, Larry Legend to Billy Dixon to Mariah Moreno and all the people that, you know, took the time to speak to me for that. Um, Larry Legend especially was, was one of my favorite to talk to for that because as kind of a queer elder, he provides such a, an important perspective and an important um, story that I think more people need to be paying attention to and be listening to. Um, and this is something I think I mentioned uh when I talked to Billy initially, um, that in a way I'm still kind of a baby queer because I've, you know, only arrived at my identity in the last few years. And because of, you know, the environment that I grew up in and stuff like that, you know, I've seen glimpses of queer culture and glimpses of our history over the years, but in the last, you know, year and a half, two years, I've had a lot of catching up to do. And I've continued to try and do that. And even through Paris's bumping, you know, I, I saw the advertisements for the show. I thought it was a very interesting and um, special concept. I had seen Paris's burning, but that was about it. I, I didn't have a lot of other reference for ballroom culture. And in, you know, the buildup to it, I, um, and in while working on it, I went and watched all of Legendary, um, and in speaking to Eric Shorey, he was able to point me towards a lot of good ballroom content on YouTube. 
and kind of the same when I spoke to Larry Legend, he talked about some of the classic balls that he got to attend. And, you know, coming out of that, again, I felt it was very important for me to try and tell the story of ballroom culture and the way it was intersecting with wrestling through the show with respect and with importance for what it means for queer culture and do them justice more than anything. That again, you know, I want to be proud of it and I want, you know, readers to enjoy it and I want people to learn something from it. But more than anything, I want, you know, people like Larry Legend to look at this and feel like I, you know, respected and tried to pay homage to their culture and to ballroom culture and to help people recognize the importance that it plays in entertainment and wrestling and so many things as we continue to move forward. Yeah, I'm 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 right there with you. I really enjoyed that that piece. By the way, a lot of the the stuff the, uh, that you spoke to Larry Legend about, and a lot of the the discussion around ballroom and pro wrestling, and the how closely related they really are, um, mm-hmm. was, was very super interesting to read. And you know, having the chance to, to speak to Accident Report myself as well uh, around Paris's bumping, like you you really recognize just how much these like whether it be ballroom or drag or like all these different little elements of queer culture that really go hand in hand with pro wrestling so easily um yeah and also like from what we've seen a lot in 2020 like just looking at the the queer events that have run in 2020 um there's been a very heavy element with those events of queer education you know um whether it be like them melding two different things together, a la Paris is bumping or um, uh, anything that Uncanny does, or even Envy Young's fashion show, Deathmatch show. Mm-hmm. Um, but like that, as well as like just using these opportunities to kind of speak to people and events and, and, and ideals within the community. Like I always go back to the moment in Paris is bumping at the very end of Billy Dixon, Darius Carter. Whenever Billy just yells out Marsha P. Johnson's name and then throws yeah, Darius Carter from a table. Marsha P. Johnson. Yes, like that. Like, what better and melding like, of worlds is there? Than my, yeah, such a such a great moment and such a great mesh. And my favorite thing about that is thinking about people who are missing that part of queer of queer history. They're gonna go, "Who's Marsha P. Johnson?" Because they're gonna look it up and they're immediately gonna understand so much more. Just from one little clip, they're going to go, "Ha, huh, that was fun. Who is that? And, and that's, I think, just as valuable and important as those of us who know and understand and can appreciate that, that moment. Exactly. Like, I think it's just it's just another avenue for people to learn more about whether they identify as queer and need to learn more about their own history or they don't. And they need to know about why these these fights and these struggles are so um are so needed for for the community yeah. as as a whole. So yeah, I, I like obviously like a lot of that's going to keep going forward with Billy and and Low with which versus Gore brand. I know they have the Cassandra Cup coming up. I'm very excited for that. Um, yeah, same. Yeah, but what was there another any other moments uh, from 2020 the, and the the swath of of queer representation in the wrestling industry that kind of spoke to you um, um, besides Paris Smoking? The other big one was Effie's Big Gay Brunch, mm. um, which was such a powerful show that was, you know, one of the many shows that we were hoping to get for the collective for WrestleMania weekend. And then obviously coronavirus, n- nothing went according to plan because of that. Um, and so 
that was another one that kind of just came together and I got the chance to get in touch with Effie and he was willing to speak about the show and while talking we got to talk about important stuff for the industry but also stuff like the literal death threats and hate crimes that were basically being perpetrated against the original event in Tampa and the fact that he was having to file police reports about bomb threats and threats for the people to shoot up the venue um, and you know that we've made a lot of progress over the years but this is just another thing that's a sign of like we still have a lot more to do and these things still exist and we can't pretend they're not there um and i can't remember if it was i believe it was talking to him about that show that he talked about um cassandro and that you know he talked about that yeah he has to deal with things and you know deal with having to hear slurs and stuff like that but cassandro as a queer elder having to navigate this industry at a time long before what it is today and having to deal with you know people trying to throw rocks and stab him to death and attack him after shows in Mexico and all these things and all the stuff that he's gone through and survived to be a you know queer elder and to be a person that we can look to as to see you know what the industry has done both good and bad and the way that we can continue moving forward so that you know we don't look back and think there's our one. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, we can look back on this era and see, you know, a wide field of LGBTQ plus talent that we can all look back on and appreciate the impact that they had moving forward. No, I, yeah, definitely agree. Like this is the, the main reason why I think a lot of people are feeling more empowered to put their put themselves out in the way that they are and to be as out as possible and to have as many out people as we do now across all swaths of the identities within the mm -hmm. uh the lgbtq spectrum and it's just it's amazing to see it's something that i you know i could only have hoped for growing up watching gold dust and wwe <laughs> yeah yeah you know uh, i heck i remember growing up and seeing uh, Rico Constantino mm -hmm. and uh, Billy and Chuck, which, boy, that was not all perfect by any <sighs> means. Yeah. But, but I mean, it's, it's as tough as some of that is. You know, it's important to look back and remember, you know, just in the early 2000s, we had stuff like Billy and Chuck's fake gay relationship to win the tag titles and the wedding that went sideways and the fact that there was an entire period of Monday Night Raw where the women were reduced to HLA and Eric Bischoff making hot lesbian action jokes and, you know, thinking, yeah, that that's tough. That's bad. But look where we've come and look what it is now. Exactly. Exactly. Like you you have a chance to look back and, and see exactly the demarcations of progress at this point yeah. and, and just how they're going to continue going forward. Like I, I'll be frank, like one of the major things that I've really enjoyed seeing is the, is the influx of non-binary talent 
in, in yeah, the industry absolutely. in terms of like just the next step of another like marginalized group within a marginalized group getting yeah. the chance to put out they put themselves out there like non-binary and the number of trans workers that we have now mm-hmm. are, are outstanding to see the fact that i get to go on twitter and and gloat about being having the chance to see max the impaler against jordan blade in a uwfi rules match in paradigm like yeah. that's a luxury i wouldn't that, that none of us would have had years ago right and but, i'm but, amazed you know, to a see previous it. a previous form of this industry would never have made that moment happen and if it had it never would have been like it is now exactly um that you know that's that's the other thing that goes along with this is that you know we've had you know some form of queer representation exist in wrestling in different ways but you know it's been you know straight talent doing queer gimmicks largely um or you know people who have extremely problematic histories that can't be looked back on, you know, cleanly and fondly. Um, But, you know, now we are building the history day by day. You know, we're building queer wrestling history one step at a time with, you know, these talents like Effie and MV Young and Jordan Blade and Still Life Without Forgotten Pairs and um, Joshua Wavra. And I mean, there's so many I could name off that are just setting up and dark chic god dark chic so amazing yes. um setting up this queer history that you know in five ten years we're going to have a rich tapestry we can look back on that has crafted what wrestling is becoming mm. no I, it's, it's a it's a bright future to look forward to and to and to yeah. keep growing into and, and experiencing as we continue to to cover it and you know i i it makes me very happy to be in the position that, that, that I'm in and to see the position that you're in to continue to, to mm-hmm. tell these stories in, in the ways that, ways that we can. Is there anything specifically yeah. that you're looking forward to uh, in you know, maybe the immediate future or a little bit down the line in terms of um, like goals for yourself or goals for, for coverage or anything like that? Um, so more than anything, I kind of want to just keep up what I'm doing. Um, I want to continue to talk to queer talent and marginalized talent and people who have important stories to tell and give them a voice and a spotlight in any way I can. Um, In the semi-immediate future, we've got the Cassandra Cup coming up. Um, I'm actually going to be speaking to Billy Dixon after they finish filming that um, and putting a spotlight on that show. Um, And they're just kind of, you know, continuing to watch the way this next year unfolds as we, you know, hopefully the vaccine becomes more prevalent and we can start getting back to something closer to the structure of the industry that we've seen in the past, but hopefully a safer and more inclusive and more accepting form of the wrestling industry than we had before we had to deal with all of this. And before we had, you know, all the brave people through speaking out that thankfully we're willing to step up and say something and rid this industry of some of its terrible people. And hopefully we can continue doing hard work in making sure that this industry is full of good people and not people like that. And that we are weeding them out so that, you know, we can create a better industry moving forward to keep talent and fans safe and included. Yeah. I'm right. I'm 
along for that ride with you, honestly. Um, and real quick, actually, I do want to touch on speaking out a little bit with you because I know, you know, there's been some criticism about how wrestling media has covered speaking out. Um, and, and we're like, we're like six months removed from the initial um, mm-hmm. rash of, of allegations that have come out around that. Do you have any, any thoughts about like any criticisms of wrestling media in terms of coverage of that? Um, or anything that you've seen that that really speaks to you and how that could have been better? Um, I, I think I think in a lot of instances, not in all, but in some instances, wrestling media was kind of doing the best it could in a very, very difficult situation. Yeah. I think there are definitely there were definitely outlets that were being a lot less sensitive to you know victim stories and the things that they had been through and all of the intersecting struggles of all of this and kind of focusing more on, Ooh, look, something else popped up. Um, and I think there's an importance to recognizing, you know, the seriousness and the severity of some of these things and also recognizing that not all of it's the same. Um, I, I had this discussion with someone recently that, you know, there's, it, it's possible to step back and recognize the differences in different incidents and, criticize them differently, you know, on opposite ends of the spectrum, we have really terrible people like, you know, Joey Ryan and David Starr and Matt Riddle, who've done these really horrendous things and honestly deserve to be in jail over them. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have somebody else who got hit kind of a little bit after speaking out was like Sammy Guevara. And Sammy Guevara said a really reprehensible thing that is not defensible by any means. But he also faced it and you know, dealt with some form of consequences, whether they were good enough or not is debatable, but he dealt with some backlash and he's trying to move forward. And I don't think he necessarily deserves a pass. And I think anybody who is still bothered by what he says that chooses not to be a fan of his is completely in the right, that's their decision. But we also have to be careful from a media perspective and from a fan perspective to not put them in the exact same category. That there's, there's nuance to this and there's, layers to this and we need to recognize the worst and we need to deal with that and we also need to recognize where there are people that need to um, have the opportunity to face what they've done that is much on a lesser scale and you know face immediate consequences and grow and move forward Um, moving forward I just think that more than anything the focus needs to be on you know if a victim tells a story believe the victim move forward from there let the story kind of be the victim's words um you know it's one thing if someone wants to actually try and you know interview a victim or interview people involved in a specific situation but i think from a wrestling media perspective we need to do less um less interjecting our own opinion into the situation and more being like look this is what is being claimed these are the circumstances and the facts that we know and just kind of let it be what has been said rather than trying to interject all our own things into it if that makes sense it totally does it, it totally does and and that's really the approach that you have to have with these things in covering such sensitive topics like this you know i've, I've you know I've, I've covered sexual assault stuff stories like this and and it's mm-hmm. one of those things where like it's a very deft hand and because you are beholden to survivors at that point you know they're yeah. they're they're trusting you to 
um, you know, whether you're interviewing them or even just taking their public comment, they're trusting you to tell their stories in, in accurate ways. And, um, yeah. you know, this has come up recently in the other spectrum, the other um, the realm that I'm in with games, you know, and so like mm -hmm. it's one of those things where like the press really has to be more understanding of who you are trying to protect in, in telling yeah. these stories and, and exactly how to do so in a ways that don't re-traumatize people as well. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's another thing that I think gets lost in, in some of the practices when it comes to interviewing uh, survivors of, of sexual assault is that trying to have those interviews, conduct those interviews in ways that don't re-traumatize or limit how much re-traumatization occurs. Yeah, and, and as much care and, you know, just as much care can be possibly taken needs to be taken um, in situations like this. You need to understand that these are things that people have been through that, you know, in many situations, it's very, very difficult for them to try and relive. And a lot of times they're, you know, they're seeing the benefit of telling the story and having to face up against the struggles of reliving, you know, what was a very difficult experience. And so, you know, these are all factors that have to be taken into account. And like you said, don't, you know, do everything you can not to re-traumatize and to not put pressure on victims and survivors to go about things a certain way or talk about things a certain way. You know, this is, they're the ones having the courage to step out and talk about it. They're the ones having the courage to face what they've gone through and get the word out because they don't want it to happen to somebody else. And because they want people to understand that this is a thing that happens and we need to, you know, be there for them and let them tell their story and support them as much as we can. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I had, I had a last question for you, but it's going to be a completely emotional swing in a way, <laughs> which it's, it, it's, I hate those kind of transitions, but we're, we're winding down here. Um, did yeah. I see a little while back, you post a picture of you uh, in a referee shirt at an event <laughs> I need to know what, yes. what what's what's your history in ring here, Mister. So, it's a very small history, but it's a fun one. Um, so my uh, um, my older sibling, who is uh, non-binary, um, they were briefly in the wrestling industry um, when I was sixteen-ish. Um, thinking back, this so this would have been 2008 or so, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, there's a promotion, or I think it still exists, but uh, it's primarily a comedic wrestling promotion in the Houston area called Doomsday Wrestling. Um, they were involved as a character called High Octane, you know, very flamey suit, very flamey hair, that kind of thing. Um, it, it had this promotion had very silly characters like the Storm and Mormons and a guy who was wearing basically a bad knockoff cane mask and the least impressive physique you've ever seen, but he was like six foot seven. And so he was called your worst nightmare. Uh, <laughs> and Bill the Thrill Korchinski, who like was an old man who came out in a wheelchair. And um, I think in later years, there was a character called Hot Flash, which was just a middle-aged woman. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and Precious Jules, who was... Um, a friend of my siblings uh, who played this character that was very gold dust adjacent, um, but pink, uh, ah. solid pink bodysuit kind of thing. Oh, wow. Um, 
and so all the weird interesting characters and so there was a brief period where my sibling Chris got involved and was playing this high octane character and the idea I, I was kind of showing interest in it and the idea came up of me being their manager and so basically there was a storyline idea that they were going to uh basically I was going to have come in and forced them to take steroids to become the champion and then they were going to get busted for steroids and uh, they were going to, you know, fire me as their manager over it and hit me with their finisher, which was the uh, Scorpion Death Drop. Um, and that was going to be it. And so we practiced this a little bit. I kind of half-assed fumbled my way through a promo during a practice at some point um and i took one move in the ring they hit me with a scorpion death drop the reverse ddt and then a little well little while down the line before the show came up plans got changed and everything got shifted around and so that whole idea got scrapped mm. i took my one move but that whole idea ended up getting scrapped and then it was like uh how about you be a referee okay, sure. Why not? Uh, so <laughs> I did, I was a referee for like two or three matches, um, at one doomsday wrestling show in the mid to late two thousands. Uh, I was patches McGillicuddy was my name for the nice. show. Um, uh, the, the image I, I think I just put up as my, uh, header on Twitter. That's on one side is my sibling, Chris, who was high octane at the time. And on the other side, uh, a friend of theirs, um, think was i think he was called the russian bear or something to that effect he was that was essentially the character he's russian mm. Grr, arg. He, <laughs> he just he, he would just scream da and stuff like that in the ring <laughs> and, and have a very kind of just very powerhouse style that goes along with it um and i refereed that match um i refereed one with the storm and mormons versus your worst nightmare which i distinctly remember was hilarious because I basically had to stop paying attention to the match so that uh, the Storm and Mormons could wear, because they came out to the ring on like bicycles, you know, wearing their Mormon outfits mm -hmm. with bike helmets. And so they would put on their bike helmets and use those as weapons in the match. <laughs> but obviously that's illegal. So came up with the idea at some point, I was like, what if I start having a coughing fit? And then I like walk over to the commentary table and I'm like, I need water. I need a bottle of water <laughs> and start pleading with them for water. And I just stood there standing at commentary, looking away from the ring, drinking water for like two minutes while the storm and Mormons are destroying your worst nightmare with bicycle helmets. God. <laughs> and eventually they're like, they're screaming at me the whole time. There's stuff going on in the ring. You're missing it. And I'm like, I'm thirsty. My throat. <laughs> You know what? You can't you can't say that they weren't creative with the ref bump though, at least. Yeah, no, it it, it worked. <laughs> it was it was something it was something fun, uh, and so yeah, I did a couple of matches that show. Um, it, it kind of got talked about doing it again, but it just kind of didn't really materialize. Um, eventually, my siblings stopped being involved with them. Kind of the main issue, which you know, I'm still, um, I have no ill will against Doomsday. They kind of do their own thing still to this day the main reason that we kind of stopped being as interested and or involved with them is they were really more interested in the comedy than the wrestling mm. and 
it it meant that the wrestling was really 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 horrendously bad sometimes and so it was kind of you know they do their thing let them have their fun but it, it just eventually our interests our interests our interests shifted elsewhere um but yes that is my uh tiny little past history claim to fame i was a referee for one night as patches mcgillicuddy in doomsday wrestling well if uh if patches mcgillicuddy got another chance to ref a match would he i i wouldn't turn it down yeah it'd be fun <laughs> and, and i've i have a much different um admiration and respect for wrestling referees today than oh I god yes. I'm 16 so <laughs> That is a position that gets so little love, or used to get so little love. Like, yeah, it is, and, it is and, such and a hard I, I think thing. it's, it, it's you know, something that has gotten a lot more appreciation and respect over the years um, now, especially compared to the past. But it's it's still something that gets, I think, overlooked as something that's very crucial, and the roles that referees play, both in telling the story and in keeping the workers safe. Yes, definitely, definitely. Well, Patches, uh, I am very thankful to you for taking the time to to chat with me about all these these really interesting conversations about the the landscape that we're in and about your own experiences. Uh, a little bit about Patches McGillicuddy there. Um, let everybody know where they can find you online and where they can read your stuff. Yeah, and thank you for having me back on again. Um, so everyone can find me pretty much everywhere at Patches Chance, all one word. Um, my website is patcheschance.com. I'll continue to be writing for Daily DDT and uh, you can find me on Twitter primarily at Patches Chance, but I also sometimes hop on Instagram or elsewhere as also Patches Chance. Nice. Well, thank you, Patches. Thank you. My thanks once again to Patches for, for coming on the show and uh, really um, sharing and, and not just his opinions, but also his. Um, his story and, and i think it's very valuable to have um at least some knowledge of of the personal experiences that um, can inform a lot of uh, the reasons why a number of people in this industry uh, get into it and, and what can inform some of their um, passions around what they cover and, and how they cover um, these sort of things so very enlightening conversation um always nice to get the chance to sit down and chat um a little bit about the industry itself um but uh and also i just i i had to ask him about his short stint as a referee there um it was just <laughs> i could i couldn't let it slide it was just really awesome um but um thank you once again good definitely go check out his stuff over on daily ddt um it's outstanding work truly truly adore it um but that's going to do it for us here this week the first installment of journalist january come back next week for the second installment um i'll leave it as a surprise it's going to be a fun one though and i cannot wait uh for y'all all to hear the the conversation next week it's going to be great it's going to be awesome um but uh of course we cannot say goodbye without thanking a collection of very awesome people that help make this show as rad as it is. The Progress Pride Flag design by Daniel Quasar is a product of Progress Initiative. Find out more at quasar.digital. Uh, and a big thank you to Sarah and the Safe Word for our theme song, Formula 666. 
That's off the album Red Hot and Holy. You can find them on Twitter at STSW Band, and you can check out their music on both Spotify and Bandcamp at sarahinthesafeword.bandcamp.com. Of course, if you want to check out uh, the best in current and classic independent pro wrestling, then you want to check out independentwrestling.tv. They have an extensive collection of uh, events and matches and different programs uh, from a wide swath of independent pro wrestling promotions uh, throughout the U.S. and beyond. Um, and, of course, plenty of live streaming events and current day running promotions as well. Um, you know, there's been a lot of Paradigm Pro that's gone up over there. Um, I know I mentioned the uh, the Maxine Paler versus Jordan Blade match that's uh, coming up in Season 2 of its UWFI Contender Series. Totally looking forward to that. And the only place you can find that is on independentwrestling.tv. And if you want a little taste of that little nugget there, um, you can use our promo code, LGBTRingPod, or you can visit tinyurl.com slash IWTVLGBT, and you can get a five-day free trial to check out everything they have to offer there and figure out if it's something that you want to stick around with and throw some money at for them. It's uh, it's a really cool little service, and, and it's always growing, and, and I am very excited every time I get to see something new go up over there. It's, it's great. Um, and if you want to have that excitement as well, use our promo code LGBTRingPod or go to tinyurl.com slash IWTVLGBT, get your five-day free trial, and enjoy all that independent pro wrestling has to offer on independentwrestling.tv. Um, of course, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at WonderboyOTM. Follow the show on Twitter at LGBTRingPod. And if you're into video games, I do also host a, a gaming news show every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, called the Mr. Video Game Super Show. That goes live over on twitch.tv slash deadsunentertainment, sun like the star. Just a weekly two-hour get-together with a couple of uh, friends, and we just run through the week's gaming news, um, you know, offer critique and analysis where needed, have fun where we can, and just it's just a, a nice little time to uh, get passionate about video games for, for a little while. Uh, we've also been starting to incorporate some uh, some extra streams on Tuesdays. I know myself and another one of my co-hosts, uh, Travis, uh, we just started a uh, what is now turning into a little bit of a, a series of a spoiler cast for The Last of Us Part Two. Um, six months too late to the party i guess but either way we're talking about it and um so that that we i think we'll be doing that um at least for next tuesday same time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific twitch.tv slash deadson entertainment so we're we're branching out and trying some new things over there but definitely come by for the uh for the gaming news every week your little slice of it every monday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific mr video game super show at twitch.tv Slash Dead Sun Entertainment. Uh, and with that, we will say goodbye for this week. Uh, of course, y'all stay messy. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. And I believe Natalie Lawhead. Everybody's ready to die. Bye. Everybody's ready to die. If they didn't see it coming from the top of the bridge, she made a deal with the